welcome to the show this week, talking about something, hopefully, that you realize how relevant it is, and we're going to talk about why this is relevant, and that's the reliability of Scripture. Right? As Christians, if we are going to believe that God has revealed himself to us, and one of the main ways he's done so is in his word, but if we don't trust his word as being reliable, if we have doubts about his word, that can cause some serious issues and doubts and struggles in our faith. And so joining me to talk about the reliability of the Bible, specifically focusing in on the reliability of the Gospels is Dr. Lydia McGrew. She's a widely published analytic philosopher and author. She received her PhD in English from Vanderbilt University, has published extensively in the fields of the theory of knowledge, specializing in formal epistemology and its application and evaluation of testimony into the philosophy of religion. And so she is defending the reliability of the Gospels and and the Book of Acts and her books that we're going to talk about today, like... Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel of Acts. And then her newest book right here, The Eye of the Beholder, The Gospel of John as a Historical Reportage. So Dr. McGrew, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk to us about this really important topic. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Absolutely. It's uh, good to have you on. It's the first time we've been able to have this conversation. So I'm fascinated to kind of hear your perspective and how you go about doing this. And so maybe first of all, start off of like, why is it important? for Christians to not only just believe the Bible's reliable, but also to be able to maybe defend the reliability of the Gospels? Well, I would say there are three major areas that make that important. One is the defense of the resurrection, which is central to yeah. our Christian faith. Another is the uh, putting doctrinal content into Christianity. So if you believe the resurrection occurred and you think that that it was God endorsing Jesus teaching, okay, well then what did Jesus teach, right? To put, right. you know, content in there. And then third, um, for reasons of personal devotion to, to Jesus, if we want to be personally devoted to him and follow him, um, and we, we want we have pastoral concerns and interests for ourselves, for other people, um, then we want to actually know whether these events really happen and whether these teachings are really historical. So I would say those three areas are really important. Yeah, and, I, and I've noticed in, in kind of my experience as I've gone and spoken at camps, you know, I, I find sometimes, uh, one time talking to a pastor who who had doubts about his faith, but he kind of maybe ignored them or didn't really investigate them. And, and he finally admitted to me, like, they had affected his teaching, right? He would stand up week after week and teaching the students uh, about the truths of Christianity, but he wasn't doing so maybe with confidence because he maybe didn't truly believe it himself. And so I'm kind of curious if you have anything that you've seen in that area as well of how maybe there are Christians who have doubts of maybe, can I really trust this? And they kind of just ignore those doubts uh, and, and just kind of push through it and how that affects one's faith rather than taking the time to truly understand why this is reliable and kind of building a confidence of faith. Have you seen kind of the, the confidence grow or the, the doubts affecting faith in that way? I, I think it can. Go, there are two different ways that it can go, probably more than two. One is exactly what you're talking about, where people just kind of squish and push their doubts down, you know. And, uh, and I mean, I was listening to a radio show the other day. It was a dramatization where a guy had some doubts related to um, evolution. And his wife just was like literally yelling at him in the dramatization. I don't know why the people who made the drama thought this was a good idea, because she was supposed to be doing the right thing. She, she literally said to him, excuse me, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And he goes, but 
but the evidence and she's like what other evidence do you need but the but the word of god oh, oh it's just awful and i thought people who take that approach you know that's that's going to be bad for them they're going to crack eventually because yeah. they're going to feel that they're being intellectually dishonest um yeah. so that's one the other thing i unfortunately see is scholars who have kind of what i might call scholarly doubts but they don't want to uh, allow that to uh, bother the ordinary people. And so they kind of hide their scholarly doubts or they will put their scholarly doubts under language that sounds like uh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Um, I have a discussion of this in Eye of the Beholder, like a use of word like paraphrase that doesn't really mean paraphrase. It means something way more radical. But they'll they'll tell people things that kind of mean don't worry about it. It's no problem. Um, and they're actually really questioning the yeah. robust historicity of the Gospels. And, you know, frankly, then the people who are following them, they'll eventually figure out what's really going on. And then they're going to have a choice to either go on that road themselves and say, OK, maybe, you know, Jesus didn't really historically say this or um, or to to say, hey, I've been you know, I've been betrayed or I've been deceived and get bitter or um something like that. So that kind of scholarly version of it is also not good. Yeah. You, you mentioned that some of the scholars, you know, kind of have their doubts, but don't really express them. But I also hear in relation to this topic, this being one of the biggest issues that college students here in college campuses and mostly like in the humanities, like I've heard of students going into a Spanish class and the Spanish teacher going against Christianity and the reliability of the Bible, or they go into a literature class. The teachers focus so intently on showing that the Bible is simply just, you know, mythology and, and it's made up stuff. Um, so I know that there's definitely some, some scholarly doubts. We're going to get to that in, in your first book and what we're going to talk about here in the eye of the beholder when it comes to the gospel of john but maybe also starting off maybe more general of some of the the attacks against scripture like how common is this for these scholars to attack this and then specifically kind of what are the the challenges or the critiques against specifically the gospel of john well you know in, in new testament studies so I, i'll talk about that area i mean you're certainly right that there are teachers in completely unrelated areas i mean it's it's awful you know like why why should a spanish class even bring up this question <laughs> just teach me spanish you know it's very odd that, um yep. and those people those people are not necessarily even current with what the actual scholars are doubting and not doubting and so forth, you know. Right. But even within the current field of uh, New Testament or biblical scholarship, sure, absolutely. I mean, when when I defend the robust reliability of the Gospels and of John in particular, if if there's a single thing that gets said most often, it's you're out of touch with scholarship. Every, every darn time, you know, every time. Um, and people who put forward my arguments, she's out of touch with scholarship. She's not. And, and of course, I don't have a credential in New Testament, although the Eye of the Beholder received some very high profile endorsements that said that it was worth reading, you know, uh, from, from very high profile people whose credentials are undeniable. Um, but it'll be, you know, ah, she's out of touch with scholarship. So definitely that is that is not the consensus of scholars that the gospels are strongly historically reliable the most you're going to get is you can find history in them mm -hmm. and i would say this is something to be alert for when you're listening to a discussion or a debate it'll be the oddest thing sometimes you'll hear the person who's actually allegedly on the pro side 
The Gospels are historically reliable. You can see this in a couple 2012 debates between Craig A. Evans and Bart Ehrman. Evans is supposedly defending the yes side to the debate, are the, uh, are the Gospels historically reliable? But when you actually listen to what he says, what he says is you can find a lot of history in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Finding a lot of history in the Gospels is not the same thing as being historically reliable. Uh, or it, it needn't be, you know, you could, you could have, I have novels in which I find a lot of history. Right. You know, I'm, I'm a literature, I'm a, li- a literature um, PhD. And uh, so you can find a lot of history and a lot of things that are not really historically reliable. And Ehrman called him on that. At a certain point in the debate, Ehrman said, I think some kind of, I believe he used the phrase sleight of hand is being done with the term reliable here. And you know what? Ehrman was right. That was sleight of hand. So I'm out here actually more strongly defending that they actually are reliable in a more straightforward sense. That's, of course, an area of my specialty in philosophy. And that straightforward sense would be something like when you find something in the document, that's really strong reason to believe that happened. And it would at least require an argument to the contrary, a good, strong argument to the contrary to decide it didn't happen. So that the the document's attestation itself is strong evidence for the proposition. That's a sense of reliable that I'm willing to define clearly and defend. And that goes beyond the idea of just finding history in them. Yeah, so that would be like the difference of, you know, Jerusalem is a real place and the Sea of Galilee is a real place and people sailed and caught fish on the Sea of Galilee, but not necessarily the catching of all the fish right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That maybe didn't happen. But yeah, the, the, the sea is real. That would be a difference of they have some history in them and some real places and locations in them versus the stories not, not aren't necessarily reliable versus what you're saying is, no, if it says that they threw their net over the side of the fish and caught a load so heavy, it, you know, it took more boats to carry in, then that actually took place. Well, or that's at least good evidence that it took place. I mean, you're going to yeah. have to have some better argument than right. just, you know, it's not found somewhere else or whatever as an argument against it. Often what you'll see as far as this have some history in them will be lists of statements about Jesus. So one of the things that uh, Dr. Evans did in that debate was he had a list from E.P. Sanders. And E.P. Sanders is actually kind of a liberal scholar, you know, I mean, big whoop. And they were things like, well, he, um, I forget what, what they were, but they were really boring things, you know, like that, um, John the Baptist, you know, existed and taught or Jesus, Jesus was a real person. And he taught about the, um, kingdom of God and he had conflicts with the Pharisees. Oh, he was baptized by John the Baptist. That was one of them. And it was this list, you know, and it's like really minimal. And so that could be the idea of having history in them, even some facts about Jesus, you know, maybe a little bit like what we would say about a character like William Tell or, um, oh, I don't know, King Arthur. At one time I was interested in the question of how historical King Arthur was. And there probably really was a person. He was probably a duke rather than a king. He was a warlord and that kind of thing. And so you go back to some of these uh, some of these works and it's like, yeah, you know, it's obviously been really elaborated, but there are some facts about King Arthur hmm. in there that are okay. true. Um, and, you know, maybe going somewhat farther than that, but I'm actually going a lot farther than that. And in so doing, I'm actually rather uh, proud of the fact that I'm not agreeing with scholarship, not that that's an end in itself, but that I do think the scholarship has gone far wrong here and needs correction.
Now, <clears throat> your, your book, The Eye of the Beholder, focuses on the Gospel of John specifically compared to the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so maybe if we can, kind of what, what are some reasons why scholars are going to question John as a gospel more than the synoptics? Why are you writing this first book that we're going to talk about specifically uh, arguing for the historical approach of John versus the others? Right. So I had written um, The Mirror or the Mask, which is a book we haven't mentioned yet here. And that's about, you know, all four of the Gospels. And right from the beginning, I realized that John comes under special scrutiny. So I realized there was no possible way I could say everything that needed to be said to defend John in the same book where I was defending the Gospels, uh, you know, all of the Gospels. So I got permission from my publisher right from the beginning to conceive of a pair of companion volumes. And and if you get a hold of the mirror of the mask, I'm often sort of forward ref- referring to the eye of the beholder. And in the eye of the beholder, I'm often backward referring to the mirror of the mask, you know, because I kind of lay the groundwork there. Um, and, and it's a very interesting question why it, chapter one of the eye of the beholder, which, by the way, is available as a free sample on LydiaMcGrew.com. People who are trying to consider whether to you know, spring for the book, um, it, there's a free free sample chapter. And also the conclusion is there as a PDF uh, with permission from my publisher. Um, I call the redheaded stepchild of gospel <laughs> scholarship. And I owe that phrase to my daughter. Um, so the, the uh, redheaded stepchild is a child who looks different from all the other kids. And people suspect that he's, you know, adopted or, um, was switched by the fairies or whatever, you know, he's not really, they're not really his siblings. And uh, because he's got red hair, none of them have red hair. And so that's where it is with John. He has a lot of different material and scholars really get spooked by that. Scholars are very fond of multiple attestation where something is the very same story is told in, in multiple places. There's a slight irony there because they also don't think Matthew, Mark and Luke have much independence. So, Multiple attestation among Matthew, Mark, and Luke on their premises shouldn't be worth all that much, but they like it anyway. Um, and then John often has this unique material. So that really that really gets under their, it's a burr under their saddles that it causes John to fall under suspicion. And then another thing is John's open interest in theological matters. I do think that John's theological preface, um, in the beginning was the word, causes a lot of unnecessary historical doubt because we have this dichotomy, false dichotomy in our minds that if someone's deeply theologically interested, he is not historically scrupulous. And I think that's a terrible misconception of John. I think he is historically scrupulous because he is theologically interested and because he really thinks that God has come to earth in the flesh. And so I use this other phrase, fake points don't make points. So if John didn't think that uh, Jesus bones remained unbroken, for example, on the cross, he would not say that that fulfilled the scripture that not a bone shall be broken because if it didn't happen, it could not fulfill the scripture, you know? So John is this very, I think, very empirical writer. And we just have this weird modern idea that you can't be a very empirical person, very interested in matters of sense and and tangibility while at the same time being a very theological person. So, you know, there are many other things that scholars will bring up, but those are two that I think really do cause doubt to be cast on John. 
I think that's really important is, is, as you mentioned, like it does start off differently, right? And then the gospel of Luke, you know, here is uh, the I, you know, the orderly account based on eyewitness testimony so that you can know versus how John starts. But I, I like it. What you said reminded me of something Jay Werner Wallace says, the cold case homicide detective of like, you know, we often dismiss the testimony of the disciples because why? Well, they believed in Jesus. And it's like saying, well, then if you are going to dismiss the testimony, like if you have a murder scene and someone says, I saw it happen, I believe he's the murderer. And then you take their eyewitness testimony of what happened. Would you dismiss that testimony because they believe that that person is guilty? It's like, well, no, they believe the person's guilty because of what they saw. And so you don't say, well, you first believe they're guilty and now you tell me what they what you saw. It's like, well, it's because of the eyewitness testimony. It's because of what you saw that's convinced you of this. And so to dismiss John... Because he or any of the gospel writers or any of the, you know, the Bible writers, because they believed in Jesus and then wrote would be like you'd have to dismiss every single eyewitness testimony of, of like any criminal trial. Right. Uh, and and right. obviously we, re we recognize where that is flawed. Well, and especially because it was really, really important to them. So um, maybe with the criminal trials, people would say, well, yeah, but like they're not basing their whole lives. You right. know, they're not changing their whole lives on that basis. And I think Richard Balcom here and he's not necessarily a super conservative uh, biblical scholar, but I think he makes a really good point here. And he analogizes the Gospels to Holocaust memorials, and like Elie Wiesel, Knight, and so forth. Okay, the, you know, those people who survived the Holocaust, that changed their whole lives. You know, that was a big deal. They were out there never again. You know, it was a, it became a commitment often of their lives to testify about what they had seen. And yet, that doesn't mean that they should not be believed. If something is a sufficiently important event and it happens at a formative period in the person's life, of course it's going to influence that person's whole life. And, and that does not in any way cast doubt on the truth of what they're saying. Yeah, that's so good. Now, in my teaching, one thing I, I want to do is I want to present a lot of uh, kind of the most common, at least I don't have time to do everything, but the most common objections to my students so that when they do go off to college or they're online or they are somewhere and they see some objection against scripture or against Christianity or God, uh, it's not catching them off guard. Like maybe the first time that they're hearing it, they can go, oh yeah, I heard about that before. My Bible teacher talked about it, you know? And, and, I, and so I want to often do that uh, uh, as much as I can. And so I'm kind of curious, as we talked about the framework of why scholars maybe distrust John more than others. Are there specific um, objections, specific issues maybe that we haven't mentioned in John that maybe Christians should be aware of that then we can kind of get into discuss and why those are not issues so that when they're hearing a scholar talk about John for the first time and, and discrediting it, they can go, oh yeah, I've heard that before. And there are a ton. And yeah. that's something that I put a lot of time into. And I really encourage people to get the book. Also, by the way, uh, by October 1st, I hope and pray it will be available in Kindle, which will awesome. be cheaper. It'll be searchable. You know, people like Kindle and carry it around on their little device, you know. So, um, you know, I'm not saying hold off and don't buy it till October 1st. But if you're looking <laughs> for Kindle, that will hopefully be out soon. Yeah. Um, so I can only give a, a little sample. But um so a biggie is the is a version of the argument from silence, and I already kind of hit it at this with the redheaded stepchild. Um, Bart Ehrman, the skeptical scholar, will just hammer on this: if Jesus really said all this explicit stuff about how he was God, like I and the Father are one, before Abraham was, I am. Why don't we find it 
in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm. You know, and it, he uses this word, surely, you know, don't call me surely, as the meme goes, you know. <laughs> um, surely, Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have said it if he really said it. And so we need to be prepared to just, like, meet that argument from silence and not budge so much as an inch. My, my husband, uh, Tim, has a, a secular paper on the argument from silence and why it's bad. And especially the argument from silence is used to dismiss a positive testimony. It was one thing for me to say, you know, I didn't hear about a bomb in my town today, so probably there wasn't a bomb in my town. That probably has some force because I could expect to hear about it. But in history, if somebody says, um, or if I had one account that there was a bomb in my town to say, well, I don't have three accounts, you know, that would be a terrible argument from silence, right? Um, So Tim gives various examples from history like um, that, the memoirs of Ulysses Grant do not tell about the Emancipation Proclamation, for example, mm. you know, or um, there's this very detailed history of the 1200s that doesn't tell about Magna Carta, even though Magna Carta is a big deal to us, uh, or Marco Polo's account of his travels never mentioned the Great Wall of China. And there, there are a bunch of these, you know, we might think that somebody would mention something and they they don't. And then that shouldn't mean that we dismiss the people who do tell about it. So we should get away from the idea that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are out there going, what is the strongest thing Jesus ever said about showing that he's God? And I want to be sure to tell about that. They didn't necessarily have that goal. Now, there are there are things in that that indicate that Jesus thought he was more than a man, you know, for right. example, that he says he can forgive sins. So there's no incompatibility between uh, the Christology, as it's called, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and that of John. But also that argument from silence used to dismiss that robust historicity in John is very poor. They just didn't happen to tell those particular instances. In fact, I think sometimes John was trying to fill in. Sometimes he was saying, hey, but you didn't tell that. For goodness sake, guys, you know, and he went and actually, I think, sometimes deliberately, you know, filled that in. So that that, you know, that kind of false claim that the argument that the Christology is inconsistent. See, this will get carried on into not just an idea that they it didn't happen because they didn't say it, but almost as if they're saying he wasn't God, you know, by by not recording it, which is a terrible argument or a slightly more subtle version is, well, since Jesus is inexplicit in the Gospel of John. I mean, excuse me, I misspoke. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's inexplicit. He'll say, you know, your sins are forgiven you, or um, you will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power, but he doesn't come right out and say, before Abraham was, I am. Then that must mean that Jesus wouldn't have said the things recorded in John. Hmm. That's a, That was an argument that was made uh, several years ago uh, in a in a in a blog post by Dr. Michael Lacona. Now he said he wasn't entirely sure whether to be convinced by this, but he wasn't sure. He was kind of agnostic and blah blah blah. But he brought it forward like as if it had some force to it. Uh, that's a terrible argument. Um, that that Jesus is uh, inexplicit in the in the instances that happen to be recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So then we generalize to Jesus was always inexplicit about his deity. Like, I think that, you know, that if he if, if he in fact taught his uh, his deity in these indirect ways in Matthew, Mark and Luke, why would he not sometimes have said the more explicit things that we find in the Gospel of John? So um, those are some arguments. There are also claims of 
contradiction. And those take more time to answer. And I do that in in the book. So for example, that John contradicts Matthew, Mark, and Luke concerning the day of the month when Jesus was crucified. And, you know, that takes some detail. You know, what are the verses where it's claiming that he was saying it was the day when the Passover lambs were killed? And is he really claiming that? And I believe Craig Blomberg's done an excellent job in that particular one. And I, I follow him and I, I believe uh, Dr. Kostenberger and Carson also uh, take this view that there's just no contradiction there and that those verses have been misinterpreted. Um, claims of a contradiction about when Jesus cleansed the temple uh, because John portrays him cleansing the temple early in his ministry and Matthew, Mark, and Luke portray him doing it at the end of his ministry. And does that mean that John moved it? Well, no, it, it doesn't, which would be unhistorical. You know, if John's like, I know it happened at the end, but I'm going to kind of make it happen at the beginning. That would be an unhistorical portrayal. Um, and I argue no, there's, there's no reason not to think that he did it twice. You know, we we often have similar kinds of protests or political statements or um, ideological statements that this is wrong, this is unjust. And you could describe them in similar words, but there are multiple instances of them. And I believe that's what Jesus was doing. So claims of contradiction are another type of objection. Um, so those are some common ones yeah. that people need to be aware of. Yeah, and I think that's good. And, you know, I was going to ask you, and you kind of addressed it, is 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 how much do you think John maybe writing as the last gospel is kind of filling in some of those gaps? And I think, I mean, personally, like, it's like, it, it's one thing to just say, like, you know, I'm the father, I won, right? But what we saw with Jesus is like, I forgive sins. And they're like, well, clearly that's a call to deity. Who are you to forgive sins? And he says, well, stand up and walk. Uh, you know, when he walks on water, his disciples see that. And so like, it almost seems to me like the 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 synoptics are are not just saying, well, here's what Jesus said. And it's like, but how do we know that's true? How do, how do we know he's actually God? Versus like, mm -hmm. here's what he did. And clearly what he did is, you know, uh, it showed that he is God. And then John, you know, maybe coming later and filling in some gaps, like, well, why didn't you mention what he said too? You know, I don't know. It's like, maybe there's right, some the aspect of that thing. working together. I think so. And I think he does it too for things like Jesus' early ministry. I mean, Jesus' early ministry, just earliest ministry, like uh, in Judea, you know, before the Galilean ministry, John fills that in. Or the raising of Lazarus, John fills that in. The foot washing, John fills that in. Jesus made a big deal about the foot washing. So yeah. um, another objection that I do want to just throw out here is the claim that Jesus sounds different in the way that he talks in the Gospel of John. Um, I spent three chapters and more in the eye of the beholder on that objection from like every possible angle um because and i think my book is unique in that respect i don't think there's any other book out there that puts that much time into that objection mm. um and then there's even a fourth chapter which i call a high resolution jesus i just did a video on my youtube channel recently where i read an excerpt from that high resolution jesus chapter um and i give examples that i mean it's literally just not true that jesus sounds completely different so there are things like you know asking you will receive you know, um, and asking you to receive. And it's like very similar saying, but in different contexts. Um, or, you know, he that saves his life will lose it in the synoptics. And, you know, he who, who loves his life will lose it in, in John. But in again, in different contexts, it's showing that he was the same teacher who taught the same thing, but on different occasions and in somewhat different wording in somewhat different ways. Um, it's a, it, a disciple is not greater than his master. He says that multiple times in Matthew, and then he says it um, 
in he says it in John as well. So I'm mean, so, sorry, multiple times in the synaptics and then multiple times in John as well. So um, it's an exaggerated claim, but also there may be little accent kinds of things like the use of uh, certain connectives in the Greek. And that's that's very trivial. And I talk about triviality. I talk about the meaning of paraphrase. What, what is paraphrase? What isn't paraphrase? And the way that the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they're both recounting Jesus' words, not in the exact words, and yet in a historically recognizable fashion that he really said those things on those occasions. Uh, and that could result in these trivial differences as well of uh, very minor matters of language. So all of that is in the book, and that's something people should be prepared. I think it could help even to watch that video and just have a few of those things at their fingertips to say, actually, he doesn't sound that different. He says this over here in the synoptics, and he says this in John, and just you know have that ready to go. Yeah, that's good. So I think those are that's helpful to have some kind of the biggest objections raised against, especially the Gospel of John, and maybe some thoughts, very brief thoughts about those. Uh, kind of now, kind of taking me that step back of just uh, how would you make maybe the the best possible case? Uh, what, what would you look to? What would you point to to say, look, th there's good. These are the best reasons to believe that the Gospel of John is historically reliable. What I try to do with that is to get like a map. And I often tell people have a map in your mind, and this for the Gospels generally and for John, of course, specifically of categories, you know, of evidence. And I, I, uh, I'm going to do a presentation at the Evangelical Theological Society, Lord willing, if I'm able to make it, which I'm planning on in November, on uh, one, just one category of evidence for the Gospel of John. I'm hoping to make a slide that says you are here, you know, like in those maps where you're you're somewhere at a, a zoo or something, you know, and it yeah. says you are here, you know. And so what I want to do is have these categories and then and then if I'm going to zero in on one of them, it's, it's sort of like you zero in and then you zero in again, you know, it's like you zoom in. And so there are, you know, there's external evidence and internal, you know, having to do with what we find within the canon of the Bible verses, confirmations from outside. And then within each of those, there, there are categories. Like within external, I, I would divide like location and geography, which John is just almost obsessed with. He's constantly, he's mentioning things like, um, like Bethsaida um, and um, Bethesda, which was a pool. And he says it had five porticos and one a uh, scholar, liberal scholar, tried to say that that represented the five books of the law, and he made it up, and then they found it, and it had five, you know, so <laughs> that kind of thing, whoops, you know, kind of embarrassing, um, or Solomon's Porch, which is attested in uh, in Josephus, or like he'll just casually, he'll just go going down, uh, they, they went down from to to Capernaum and they had been in Cana before well, you do go down from Cana to Capernaum and that's the way you talk when you're actually familiar with the right. landscape um, so location and then what I call customs and culture and there's all this customs and culture stuff like um, we're going to talk later about washing their hands before they eat we'll be talking later about that but um, you know things like Annas was um, Caiaphas he says was the high priest that year and people will say that year, you know, high priest was a lifelong thing. Well, then you find out that the Romans actually did have the power to replace um, 
replaced the high priest and did do so at times. And then Caiaphas was replaced a few years later. So when he says he was the high priest that year, it's just this kind of casual recognition that being high priest could be kind of a, a wobbly, you know, wobbly thing. So that's an example of customs and culture. Um, or he mentions that um, the Sea of Galilee also called, he says, the Sea of Tiberias. And then in Josephus, we have this little story about how it came to be called the Sea of Tiberias, because uh, Herod Antipas, who was ruling Galilee, right then built the town and he named it for the emperor Tiberius and so on. Um, so we've got all of that. That's external. And then internal, we've got undesigned coincidences, which we'll be talking about later. But then there are also things that I call unexplained allusions, um, unnecessary details, reconcilable variation, the very fact that it's possible to reconcile things that might at first appear to be contradictions is a mark of accuracy. And so these these relate to sort of what Jay Warner Wallace talks about, about forensic statement analysis, that you can tell that the way people talk, the way the gospels are written is the way that people talk or telling the truth. And those are internal kinds of uh, evidence. So that's that kind of map. And I think it's so important for people to have. Sometimes people will bring uh, specific objections to me and, and they'll bring like a little flurry of them. And I'll say, slow down, slow down, you know, take your time and kind of sink yourself into the positive case get a sense for the landscape, get a sense for that map. And then you won't be running around in this ADHD fashion, uh, getting all unsettled by one objection that you don't happen to have an answer to in your back pocket, because you'll develop a kind of a calmness and a confidence. And I think that's, that's really important. And having these categories and then specifics within these categories is really helpful. Yeah. And I think that is so helpful. And maybe we don't even realize, and, and this is what I think I, really fascinates me and kind of opens my mind up when I start to study these things I realize how true it is in our practical life so like um, I was born and raised in Colorado I, I've lived in California for a while but I'm not super familiar so sometimes people I, I say hey where are you from and they mention some city and I don't mm -hmm. know if it's up from me if it's down from me if it's over towards Los Angeles or I don't know and so it's like well we're just gonna go to whatever Pasadena uh, well, I know mm -hmm. where that is, but you know, the, the example, it's like, we're just going to go to there versus you show that you Chico. have much more. Yeah. You show that you have much more familiarity with, with the area when you're saying, oh, we're going up to Pasadena. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something mm -hmm. so small, but it's showing like, I actually am aware of what's happening here. I know the geography. I'm familiar mm -hmm. with this area. I'm not some outsider writing about it. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that there's some objection saying, well, what if John is just trying to show that he is more familiar and he's done his research? And so he's adding these details of locations and names uh, that doesn't show that he actually is really from there necessarily. But he just shows that he's done his research. How likely or how reasonable is this objection? So that's a really uh, good point to raise because skeptics will say things like that and they're terribly anachronistic that kind of an objection terribly anachronistic um we are so used to the information age um now i remember when there was no internet i'm i'm that old and yet even then we were in a sense already in an information age because you could already go to a a, a library anybody you know i mean unless you really lived out in the middle of nowhere had access to a local library and you could get an atlas you know, or a far farmer's almanac, you know, when was there a uh, eclipse in this year or whatever, you know, or um, is this up or down from this, you know, I'm going to find that, uh, find that. And I remember when you had to, you know, it took some work 
to actually open up a physical book, which maybe you didn't own. So you had to go somewhere and get the physical book and open it up and find that little town. And I can, I can remember doing road trips using road atlases, which I enjoyed actually. But the information was there. It was out there. It was available if you just put in the legwork. That is completely anachronistic to the time of Jesus. There would not have been some place where John, his gospel was probably first put forward over in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Um, if he's living over there where he could go to his library and get out an atlas and find out, you know, is Cana, or even the existence of Cana, let's just start there. Um, it was a little town, not very important. And then is it uphill or downhill to Capernaum? Uh, and like, oh, oh, here's a contour map, you know, so it's downhill. There's nothing like that. Like it was incredibly hard to do. Um, the second thing is that there was not hyper-realistic fiction. There was fiction. Every time I say this, somebody goes out and goes, what about this, this fiction, ancient fiction? And it's like, super melodramatic and corny and it's like i said hyper realistic fiction we have hyper realistic fiction now um where someone will often they'll take their own actual memories uh and then they'll weave them in but sometimes they research things that that they were not there for uh in a like a historical novel and they'll make it extremely realistic that genre did not exist at the time at all so for john even to think of it he would have had to like dream up a genre that didn't exist, go out and do some research. And we have no idea how he would have done that because he didn't have those books and those things available to him. So that would have been impossible. Anyway, invent the genre, write something in the genre, and then nobody else ever did it after that for over a thousand years. It like disappeared without a trace. It didn't have any successors. Like that's terrible, terrible theory. <laughs> that doesn't, it's historically not even worth considering. One thing that I think we should think about too is kind of turn it around. Suppose he got these little things wrong. The skeptics would be all over them as an argument against it. So if he, when he gets them right again and again and again and we can check them, then that's got to be an argument for it. Now in probability, we can have asymmetries where something is not as strong of an argument in one direction as the other. But if anything, this is the asymmetry goes the direction that when he gets it right, it's stronger evidence than a small error is evidence against. So if anything, the asymmetry here goes the other way. But it's obvious that uh, it's a very ad hoc hypothesis. And again, one that there's enormous evidence against that John was somehow researching these and putting them in deliberately and writing fiction. And it seems even more unreasonable if you take also like a, a more liberal dating for the Gospel of John, because mm. now you not only say he has to somehow research and get all these very specific details, but he's also doing it many years after the events actually took place versus if you have a more maybe conservative dating and putting him closer to that time where he, you know, at least if he's making it up, he can interview people that are actually there and then add some fake stuff like then it becomes more reasonable. So it seems like you take something already unreasonable for him to be able to gather all this data. And then if you take a more liberal dating of him writing so much later, uh, it kind of in my mind, it seems to add together. Is there any? <laughs> well, I think I think with the fall of Jerusalem, I actually think John was written after the fall of Jerusalem uh, because the patristic evidence is that it was written in his old age. Uh, so, you know, he lived before the fall of Jerusalem, but then he's probably writing it down somewhat later. But these, a lot of these are, are locations in Jerusalem that just wouldn't have been there, like like the Pool of Bethesda, like I mentioned before, you know, would have been 
uh, destroyed uh, or, you know, so or just that casual familiarity with it. It shows someone who actually, you know, lived before all of this was uh, wrecked. You know, um, the other thing that I want to mention here is the evidence of casualness. So important. John does not parade this knowledge out there in any way that you would expect somebody to do who was trying to go, look at me, look how accurate I am. And his original readers probably hadn't even heard of Cana. Okay, so I mean, there's no point in putting Cana in there. If the people there in Asia Minor, they're living over there, Gentiles living over there, it's like they've never heard of Cana. So it doesn't mean anything to them and or going down or whatever. The evidence of casualness is something we must, must, must get a stronger sense of that when somebody does something casually, it, he's just asking for it to be overlooked as a, as a positive uh, reason. And we'll come back to this when we talk about undesigned coincidences a little bit later. Um, it must, as one of the older 19th century writers put, uh, a forger is going to put stuff in there that will serve his ends. It will serve his purposes. And it does not serve the ends or the purposes of forgery to put something in there that is so subtle and so casual that it's going to be overlooked. And that is the case with so many of these confirmations of John's gospel. He could not have known that they would be confirmed later. He's clearly not writing with an eye to people checking up on them. That's not even in his mind. He just says it, be, it, it, it by the way woven into his stories. And that has evidential force in and of itself. So you mentioned a few times this idea of undesigned coincidences, and, and this is what your book Hidden in Plain View kind of talks about. And so maybe kind of jump from the start and, and to maybe explaining what are these? So when someone says, you know, undesigned coincidences, what are you about to talk about? What is an undesigned coincidence? So sometimes I call it an incidental interlocking that points to truth or a casual connection that points to truth. And it is often best illustrated by an example. So here's an example I use a lot, made up example. Uh, it's suppose you have people claiming there was bank robbery <clears throat> and uh, the police interview the people. And one alleged witness to the bank robbery says, I noticed that his shoelace was untied when he was in line ahead of me. And the other alleged witness says, I noticed that when he ran away, he tripped, okay? And the guy who mentions the shoelace doesn't mention the tripping, and the guy who mentions the tripping doesn't mention the shoelace. That is an undesigned coincidence. Um, so it appears that neither one of them is trying to refer to what the other person is saying, like, oh, I know why he tripped. I noticed he had a shoelace untied. Now, if somebody does that, that doesn't necessarily mean he's not telling the truth, but that's not an undesigned coincidence because he's, you know, deliberately connecting it with what the other guy is saying. Um, and I, I think also we should think that the word coincidence is like the word coincidence. It's a coming together. It's not a mere coincidence, but it is a coincidence that is happening because they're both telling the truth. Okay. Now you make the case before we, I, I want to jump in and look at a few different examples, both that confirm John and then how John confirms the synoptics. Uh, but you kind of mentioned this in the book of talking about how this isn't necessarily like proof of this. Like we even look at one of these undesigned coincidences and say, look, there we go. That proves the gospel of John is historical, but really you talk about this cumulative case. So how would maybe you explain how that cumulative case works for this uh, internal evidence? 
And that's true of so many of these kinds of evidences that they're cumulative. And, and that's one reason why I often avoid the word proof. Um, you know, you, you, you hear a certain one, I find especially with undesigned coincidences, but this happens with external confirmations as well. Um, certain ones will strike people and a different, different ones will strike different people. You know, now that sounds extremely subjective, but um, maybe someone's background information is such that it reminds him of something that he's encountered in, in real life. And so then that has more force for him. Uh, and some of them just are stronger than others. Sometimes there's more uh, plausibility to the idea that this is literally just a coincidence, that it just, you know, happened that Jesus talked to that particular disciple or whatever, uh, and that there is no special explanation. Um, and then others of them, I think, have so much force that it's like, no, I don't think that was just a coincidence. I think that that really is the explanation, the correct explanation. So they vary in force. And so that's another reason why we want uh, them to be cumulative. And, um, you know, we want all the evidence we can have. And this is how history works. History is always cumulative. You know, whenever you're arguing for some historical event, you're always going to bring in there's this and then there's this and then there's this because we're always looking for clues. So I just think that's that's normal. And uh, but it's especially noticeable in the case of undesigned coincidences. Right. Right. Good. So what we're taking here is not saying that one of these examples that we're going to show somehow proves the reliability. And it's not even saying that five of them or 10 of them put together shows the reliability, but it's the undesigned coincidences with the external historical things that we talked mm -hmm. about of locations and cultures and names and everything mm -hmm. that confirms mm -hmm. as well as other internal evidence altogether really makes such a positive case for this. And so to kind of give a biblical example of one of these, uh, the first one actually in your book was this quote in the Gospel of John saying, he was before me. So let me pull it up here so everyone can see it on the screen. And then we're going to kind of talk through this. So on the left side, we have the Gospel of John uh, verses uh, 15 uh, to about 30 or so um, talking about he was before me. So what do we see here in the Gospel of John first? Um, so the Gospel of John, he quotes John the Baptist. In fact, by my recollection, he quotes him saying the same thing twice. Not that he said it twice, but that John the Evangelist quotes it twice. He likes it. Um, and so it, in the middle of that very theological thing at the beginning where he's talking about the preexistence of the word, that the word existed um, from eternity, according to the evangelist, according to John the Evangelist, um, so it's not as though Jesus came into existence, you know, the son, the eternal son did not come into existence at the incarnation. That is when he uh, was made man, as he puts it. He was incarnate yeah. and was made man. And so he, as kind of an attestation to this, he brings in John the Baptist, who bore record and said, he who comes after me is to be preferred before me, for he was before me. And it's clear that John the Evangelist takes that to be John the Baptist, who was a prophet. So the idea is, you know, he had special theological knowledge, is attesting to the preexistence of the Son, that he was before him. And then he and then he, he tells it again later, kind of in its proper narrative order. Um, so that's what we find there in the Gospel of John. And then that raises a kind of interesting question. Do you want me to go ahead and mention what that question is? Yeah. So what is the question that, you know, because most of us should read this. Go, okay, cool. So what question mm -hmm. does this kind of spur mm -hmm. in your mind? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, as you're reading it, you kind of say, why is John the evangelist so sure that John the Baptist is not just saying that Jesus was older than he was? I mean, like literally older. 
You know, this is this a culture. Right. He came. He was before me. So this is a culture that has a certain amount of preference for, you know, the eldest son or the older people. We should have respect for them and so on. How do we know that that's not and how did John the evangelist know or why was he so sure that that's not what John the Baptist is referring to? And, you know, he doesn't go into any any further explanation. He just like unthinkingly he interprets John the Baptist that way. So what's so, the answer? <laughs> yeah. Here we go. So in Luke, uh, so Luke uh, 1, uh, verses 26 and 36, you kind of give the answer. So what do we see in Luke and how is this an undesigned coincidence that kind of clarifies that question? Well, John the Baptist is older than Jesus, according to Luke. <laughs> now, Luke, um, I mean, has absolutely no theological reason whatsoever for making John the Baptist older than Jesus. It's just like, you know, when the when the announcement is made to Mary that she's going to conceive, it says your cousin Elizabeth is already six months pregnant. Um, and then it tells the story of the birth of John the Baptist. And that's John the Baptist. So he's um, six months older than Jesus. And um, Luke just like tells this as a matter of history. And I think that John the Evangelist knew this just as kind of a historical thing. Some people conjecture John the Evangelist may have been originally a disciple of John the Baptist. I don't think we have overwhelming evidence of that, but I think there's, you know, some some weak evidence for that conjecture. And so in that case, you know, he could have easily picked it up there or he could have picked it up from Jesus himself when he was his disciple that John the Baptist was in fact literally older and so that's why without even stopping to think twice or stopping to explain it maybe his audience didn't even know that they may or may not but he himself is like John the Baptist must have been referring to something different something more uh, major and theological and spooky or whatever you want to call it not just simple uh, physical H here when yeah. he said he was before me. And I think that's important because as us, we read it, we already know the story um, <laughs> that Jesus was in fact came after. And so we immediately see that Jesus was before me and we assume the divinity, right? We assume that aspect mm -hmm. of it because we know the complete story and maybe we don't stop and realize what were the readers of John uh, saying um, mm -hmm. now, or what were they thinking as they read mm -hmm. this and maybe didn't understand that aspect uh, what would be like maybe a quick scholar, you know, objection to this, is, you know, is John just adding this in because John recognizes the, the, the divinity aspect. And so he just adds this in to show that Jesus is God uh, without explaining it. And so he's actually designing this. He, he's, he's doing it intentionally, knowing what the people reading are going to assume based on the gospels that came earlier from him. Well, I don't think he could necessarily have assumed that they would have read it or that they would have known it. And I, I also think, and here's something I'll be bringing up repeatedly, that value of casualness. If you're going to design something like that, I believe that there's no good reason for you not to explain it hmm. and take the chance that somebody's going to overlook it. And we just see this unselfconsciousness. And I, I believe that we need to get kind of a, what I would call an ear for that, both in the external confirmations and in the internal undesigned coincidences, an ear for the unselfconsciousness of the authors, that they are so not trying to access some heavy background. And this is something scholars do not, do not understand. So I'll just give you one real quick example of this. Um, some people think that John made up the time at which Pilate condemned Jesus because there's an alleged 
discrepancy there. I think there's probably a textual variant there. But anyway, because he says that Pilate condemned Jesus at the sixth hour. Um, and you can actually read in a commentary, the author says, well, you know, John's readers would remember that it was at the sixth hour that Jesus was weary uh, in Samaria back in John 4 and sat down at the well. And like that's supposed to have some heavy, you know, theological. And it's like we are turning John's readers into these literary critics, basically, where they're going to go, ooh, the sixth hour. Where else have I heard of the sixth hour? It's over here. It's, you know, when Jesus was weary. So this is a sign of his humanity or whatever. And, or other people will say that was the hour when the Passover lambs were killed. And they would go, ooh, you know. And I just, I don't think they were doing that. In fact, I've sometimes wanted to make a meme with that Monty Python skit, She Must Be a Witch. If you've ever seen that, where they'll go, uh, you know, what else floats? A duck? You know, and then they put the duck, you know, in the, in the, in the scale with the woman. And if she weighs the same as a duck, she must be a witch, you know. So what else happened at the sixth hour? Ooh, Jesus was weary in Samaria, you know. And it's the same way here that I don't think we should picture John's readers as doing all of this heavy questioning. And then John is saying, well, they're going to do that heavy questioning, but it's okay because they will have heard of that. I don't need to explain it. They'll kind of figure this out and then that'll seem cool to them. He doesn't seem to think or write that way. Yeah. Uh, interesting. All right. So I want to look at another one because this one, this one really got me because this is a question I have never asked about the Gospels myself. Uh, and it was, uh, you, you're reading in John chapter two, the wedding in Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. Everyone knows that story. But the question that you ask here is, why are the pots empty? And uh, we see that, right? So Jesus says uh, here in John chapter two, um, it says, uh, let's see, where is it? There we go. Fill the jars with water. So why were the pots empty? Right, because so John says it's for the purification rites of the Jews. He specifically yeah. throws that in. And it's like, well, you know, if they're for the purification rites, they should have water in them, right? I mean, you can't purify yourself if there's nothing in them. Um, now, I think one reason that we don't notice this is because most of us grew up having our mothers say, go wash your hands for supper. <laughs> okay, so our culture whether, you know, whatever the causal background of that in America is you wash your hands before you eat. Um, and, you know, sometimes if you go out to a friend's house uh, as a mother, you will even fake that you make your kids wash their hands before they eat because you don't want the other mother to think you're slobs, even though at your own home you don't actually. But when you're in somebody else's home, you'll, kids, go wash your hands before we eat. You know, remember, that's what we do, right? You know, because it's very common. But, um it's, it's not necessarily true that in all cultures, they wash their hands before they eat. And yet it is true in Jewish culture. So if you get up the passage in Mark there, Mark completely seven. different story. So that's a story about um, the, the Pharisees who object because Jesus disciples eat without washing their hands you know they're like some we would call it a karen you know who are like uh why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat and then mark goes into this big elaborate explanation you know the jews do not eat before washing their hands etc 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 the very fact that mark has to go into that explanation shows that it was not universal at the time and that mark is maybe thinking of a gentile audience to whom this will not be obvious you know, maybe they'll say, well, you know, you wash your hands after they after you eat because that's when you have all the sticky stuff all over your hands, you know, uh, or whatever, you know, that you don't automatically. But he's like, this is what the Jews do. Now, 
the marriage fees back in Canada, it's been going on already for a while. Right. So like that's why they ran out of the wine. So the people have come in and they've washed already prior to going into the feast and eating. And then the, the pots are, you know, either empty or virtually empty because the guests have all been there already for a while eating. And that's the explanation. Yeah, so the pots that are there for the purification, as we see in John chapter 2, are empty because the purification has already taken place. So John mm-hmm. John doesn't take the time to explain why the pots are empty. He says, hey, grab some empty pots, just like you would do if you know, you're know you watching Jesus and what he says. And Jesus says, grab the empty pots and fill them with water. So John writes, grab the empty pots and fill them with water. It's here in a completely disconnected story in Mark that we understand why the pots are empty, because they would already use the water. Um, okay, so uh, another one I thought was interesting. Uh, let me pull it up here on the screen. In John chapter 21, uh, you ask the question, why is Jesus being so mean? So looking at John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, uh, we have Jesus talking to Peter. Uh, why, why are you asking the question here in this section of Jesus being mean to Peter? So I think we're all real familiar with this. It's a very beloved passage where Jesus says, do you love me more than these? And he asks it, you know, he asks him three times, Simon son of Jonah, do you love me? And he like really pushes on it. Super embarrassing. You can imagine being there. It's like a cringe moment, you know, where if you're the other disciples, you're just going to be like, man, you know, and, and, and Peter gets increasingly uncomfortable. And he says, Lord, you know, that, you know, that I love me. I love you. You know, all things, you know? And, and so it's like, it's clearly kind of hurting him. I think it even says he was grieved because he asked him again. Um, So that's kind of mean in a way. And the other thing that's a little odd is the um, comparison. Now there's a song out there, lovest thou me more than these. And I'm terribly sorry to have to explain to people, but that song is not interpreting the passage correctly because that song, the these are other things you might love. So it interprets it as, do you love me more than you love these other things? But it's, I would say it's pretty clear from the grammar of the passage that he's saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Do you love me more than these guys love me? I mean, it's, it, you know, it's just these. It just, you know, cuts off right. there. But now think about Jesus who's constantly telling them, do not be comparing yourselves to one another. He'll chide them when they'll go, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? You know, can I sit on your right hand, your left hand? And, you know, they fight over that. He's like basically just saying, you just follow me. So this almost seems contradictory uh, for him to be saying, so Peter, do you love me more than these guys love me? It it almost seems to contradict Jesus' other teaching. Right. Uh, For him to be, in a sense, asking Peter to compare himself and his love to that of the other disciples. What is going on there? When you kind of dig into it, it, it does raise a question. Absolutely. So we have these two questions that are raised. You know, why is he asking three times? Why is he kind of being mean to Peter as well as why is he making this comparison? So one of the ways in which we kind of compare this or we we see an answer to this is in Mark chapter 14, which I brought up here. So uh, what do we see here in Mark chapter 14 that kind of gives us some insight as to why Jesus is being mean in a sense uh, to Peter in John chapter 21? Well, Peter had boasted specifically on the night of the Last Supper and the night where Jesus was betrayed. 
even if all these others forsake you, I never will. So this is a feature of Peter's personality. By the way, this is something I use in the mirror or the mask. I have a whole section on Peter's personality as evidence of the reliability of the Gospels. A feature of person, Peter's personality is he's always arguing. Um, but he's also arguing often out of love for Jesus. And so Jesus has predicted on the night of his betrayal, you will all forsake me, you will all be scattered. And Peter being Peter, you know, he's like so confident in his love for Jesus. And he's a little, probably a little hurt, you know, that Jesus is saying, you're all going to run away. And he says, no, he says, even if they all forsake you, I never will. So he's the one comparing himself to the other disciples, right? Well, now we all know how that story goes. <laughs> Not right? well for Peter. <laughs> it, it's like in all, it's in all the gospels. It's, it's in John as well. Uh, after having made that boast and explicitly compared himself to the other disciples, not only did Jesus, uh, not only did Peter run away. Okay, so first he runs away, but then again, because he's Peter and because he really does love Jesus, he kind of pulls himself together and he, he tries to follow and he goes in and he goes into the courtyard. But then when he's challenged, uh, weren't you with him? He loses his nerve right. and he does deny that he knew Jesus at all. He denies him three times. And so Jesus is restoring him here and he's asking him, do you really love me more than these others do? And I think they all know, you know, by that time, I think they all know the story. Peter's probably told the story on himself already. Mm -hmm. And he's asking Peter to have this humility and not say, I love you more than the rest of them. And you notice Peter doesn't say, I love you more than the rest of these. I love you more than these. He just says, I love you. And, and so it's actually, it actually, I think, adds to our depth of understanding of the passage when we realize that's what Jesus is alluding to. But that's in the synoptics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. One more that we have time for uh, this idea of um, asking. So you're a king. And by the way, I just want to point out just in the first like two examples here, you know, in the book, uh, Hidden in Plain View, you have nine different examples of how the synoptics clarify something in the Gospel of John that he doesn't clarify. And then in the next chapter, uh, there are six different examples of how John clarifies things in the synoptics. And, and that's just two of the chapters. So there's 15 different examples of undesigned coincidences. We're just touching on a couple couple here very quickly. Uh, but one example you have here is asking this question. So you're a king, no problem, right? And so you have this accusation. And so let me pull it up here on the right side, Luke chapter 23, we see the story of Jesus before Pilate. So what's happening here in Luke chapter 23 uh, in this example? So Jesus has been accused of sedition. The uh, religious leaders have dragged him before Pilate early in the morning, and they say, you know, we found him forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And this was a big deal. Pilate had to take note of this. He couldn't just, he would have liked to have dismissed it. He's been awakened early in the morning. He doesn't really want this hassle, but he, he has to because he's the Roman governor. And so they're accusing him of, of stirring up opposition to Caesar, which is a complete lie, of course, as we know from Jesus' uh, Jesus' ministry and the accounts of it in the Gospels, but that's what they say. So Pilate goes back and he, he goes to Jesus and he says, so Jesus is like in, inside um, in, in Pilate's judgment hall. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? So he's asking because that's what they brought up. And Jesus says, you have said it, Sulegas. Now, 
there are differences of opinion. Bart Ehrman will jump on your case if you say that this means yes. Although it is definitely used in Mark, we can see by comparison, comparing, um, I believe it's Mark and Luke in a different scene that Mark takes Suleges to mean yes in a different scene before the Sanhedrin. Um, I think it is an idiom that means yes. We actually have a similar idiom. You said it. You said it, which means yes. But suppose you even don't take it that way. Suppose you just take it to Jesus to be going, well, you say, that's what you say. You know, I ain't saying. I'm not saying, but that's what you say. That's really cheeky. I mean, this governor can, and in the end does, sentence him to be crucified. So this guy's got authority. This is like being cheeky to the police or something. Yeah. And so Jesus definitely does not deny the charge. And Pilate turns around. And he goes back out to the people in Luke and he says, I find no fault in this man. So that's what I mean by, so you're a king, no problem. I got that phrase from Tim and that way of putting it because he, he did that in a lecture. It's as though Pilate is going, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> We're cool. <Yeah. laughs> and he, What? If Jesus doesn't deny this very serious accusation, why does Pilate say, I find no guilt in him? So it seems it seems almost you know changing the, the the question. It's like they're accusing someone of murder, and then the judge says, "Are you a murderer?" And you pretty much say, "Yes, I am." And they go, "Okay, cool. You're innocent. You're free to go." Like it's right. like here's here's the accusation against you. Have you done it? Jesus says yes, and then he goes, "Okay, no guilt." Um, so again, this story kind of like, okay, what is going on here? Why why then is Pilate saying there's no guilt in? Jesus, if he kind of admitted to this, and this is then where now we look into the Gospel of John to get some clarification. John chapter 18, uh, what do we see here in the Gospel of John? What we see is that the dialogue is actually longer. And I want to emphasize here, I don't actually think Luke knew about that longer dialogue. And so this, again, is that casualness and that difficulty of, of saying, oh, he did it on purpose. Um, I don't think Luke did it on purpose. I don't think Luke had access to the longer dialogue in John. That's why he tells it in such a confusing way, because he tells what he had. You know, there was no reason for him to, to write in a way that was confusing. Uh, that would be super hyper subtle, you know, for Luke to be going, oh, there's a longer dialogue and maybe they know about that. Maybe they'll think about that. Maybe they'll think my story is cool because it raises this. And that doesn't make sense. You don't deliberately yeah. write a confusing passage like that. But in fact, even if Luke didn't know about it, and even though I think he probably didn't, there was this longer dialogue that is recorded in John, presumably from a different witness, a different source that had access to the facts where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I would not be delivered unto the Jews. Therefore, my kingdom is not from hence. And um, he actually says, and Pilate says, are you a king then? And he says, for this cause, I was born into the world. So he's like, you know, very explicit. Yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And it's like, I'm not trying to start an insurrection. Now we know that Peter, that's another undesigned coincidence. Peter actually did cut off the servant's ear, but Jesus healed it. So there was not, the, and, he, and he rebuked Peter. So there was not this ongoing like fight. There was no, no fighting uh, to try to prevent it uh, because Peter or Jesus just put a stop to that. So Jesus can attest to his peaceful intentions. And so Pilate pretty clearly is like some weird religious thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some religious stuff, you know, yeah. there are weirdos out there and he sees Jesus as more or less a harmless religious crank. And I think this is part of why 
you know, Pilate was not a good guy. But he didn't exactly, he wasn't, I think, such a sadist that he wanted to just crucify some innocent religious crank because the Jews got him out of bed at 7.30 in the morning and said, hey, we hate this guy, please crucify him. He didn't like to be used as a pawn or a tool of, of his subject people. And he did not, in fact, think Jesus was trying to start sedition. And so he does kind of put up a bit of resistance, but then he gives in in the end. So that's the explanation there in John, but not found in Luke. So fascinating. And, and as I've already mentioned, there are so many more of these that, that are just, I guess, mind-opening. And, and to me, as I read this, and when I want to encourage anybody who's watching or listening, is they reading this just makes you kind of start to see the Gospels in a new way, start to see things that maybe you're not asking the questions or you're not realizing these details, and you start to see these details fitting together again, just like we would see in normal eyewitness testimony, where one eyewitness says, well, I heard him say this, and then they said this, and you, but they weren't aware of what happened inside the building or something, but someone else was inside and can tell you what happened inside. And now you put this together and you have this whole complete picture. And so it really does match eyewitness testimony. And there are many more examples of this. So Dr. McGrew, I thank you just so much for explaining these few things and helping us understand this. Um, I know you mentioned uh, an art uh, uh, that, that those who are listening and watching can get the first chapter of The Eye of the Beholder, as well as uh, your YouTube channel. I will link to that in the description below in YouTube. Anything else that you kind of want to leave the, the authors with? Maybe an encouragement of, you know, the reliability of Scripture and what that means for our faith? Yeah, I, I really want to emphasize that God has not left himself without witness, as uh, I believe the Apostle Paul says, that um, this is not something you believe just on blind faith. We don't believe what we believe about Christianity as a leap in the dark in any way, or just because we kind of assume it and that's it and we're not going to argue. Um, it's because we actually do have evidence and we don't need to be afraid of these objections. We can actually answer them historically. So this is historical. God has given himself a witness here in history. So I hope you'll um, you know, subscribe to that YouTube channel if that interests you. And then uh, Ryan can put a link to the books in uh, in, in the um, show notes. And I'm also very hopeful that by uh, the beginning of October, uh, The Eye of the Beholder, as well as my other two books, Hidden in Plain View and The Mirror of the Mask, will be available in Kindle as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and, and sharing this uh, really interesting information with us. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Awesome. And uh, again, I just want to encourage, there are other books as we mentioned, but here are the two that we talked about today. Uh, there will be a link to those down below, as well as uh, the next interview coming up with Jay Warner Wallace, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Uh, hope, a fascinating conversation. A lot more interviews that are coming up. I'm, I'm emailing and talking to people. So if this has been something that has interested you in how to know what Christianity teaches, what the Bible teaches, be able to defend it well and faithfully live it out, I would just encourage you to check it out, uh, as well as follow on social media where you can ask questions and have more interaction. Uh, subscribe, share this with somebody around you, and I hope that this has been an encouragement to you today. So uh, with that, I will see you guys later with another interview, another video coming up soon. So have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless. Continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. Don't hesitate to follow your love.